Um, and at this time, I'll uh, read the scripture passage for today. It comes from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And at this time, I'm going to welcome Evangelist Luke to come to a once familiar pulpit to <laughs> preach our sermon. Thanks, Esther. Thank you. Good morning, Reno. Been a while. It's a joy and honor to be able to preach God's word this morning. Let's see if this works. Great. Well, I'll have the opportunity to share a little bit more about what we've been up to uh, next week, but today I want to focus on the passage at hand. Um, last week, if you're here with us, Pastor Bill began a new series on, on spiritual transformation. And to begin, he showed us that, that we are worshipers, and as worshipers, we are all seeking some kind of treasure. And that treasure controls our hearts, and our con heart, therefore, controls our behaviors. Uh, how's that, Pastor Bill? Um, I was taking notes. But then he began to touch on something, the question of, of what or who we treasure, because we can treasure having or we can treasure loving, loving God, loving others. And they are mutually exclusive. And I want to continue, continue on that theme by asking, what do we treasure more than God himself? That, by definition, is what we call an idol. And I'll be honest up front, our passage this morning, it's not the easiest passage to swallow. It's a convicting passage, but an honest one. And more importantly, it's God's truth. So we're going to talk about idols and specifically the consequences of our idolatry. And those are the three points for this morning. The first consequence is that idols control us as we serve them. And the second consequence is that we become like idols. We become like them. And the third is that God gives us up to those idols. I told you, not the fluffiest of passages, but nevertheless, God's truth. So in order for that truth to take root in our hearts, join with me as we seek his help uh, in prayer. Father, as we approach this passage this morning, help us to never Stand on top of your word, but under it. Considering and wondering and thinking what you have to say before what we need to say. Testing our emotions, our experiences, our thoughts against the eternal truth of your word. Lord, we cannot do that apart from your spirit. So we invite you, not only fill my lips but open our hearts to receive you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the first consequence is that idols control us. So if you look in our passage, look at verse 23, Paul describes that in our worship of idols, what we're actually doing is we're exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and, and creeping things. 
And that image of exchanging occurs again in verse 25. So that theme happens time and time again where we exchange here now the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve what? The creature rather than the creator. It's because this goes against the core of how God made us and what God made us for. This is why it is so dangerous. If you think back with me to the Garden of Eden when God created man, what does God tell Adam and Eve to do? To be fruitful and multiply. Why? So that they can fill the earth. And the second part of that is to subdue it. To have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so here we see to be made in the image of God consists in two parts. The first is Describe in the essence of who you are, in your being, to be made in God's image. This is why, for example, racism is a sin. Because to hate your brother or sister is in essence, pun intended, is to essence to reject God's image in them. The second part of being made in God's image is not in who you are, but in what we do. In what we're created to do, philosophers call mankind telic creatures. Telic means to move towards an end, to have purpose. We need purpose to live and to survive. It is that which makes us will to go on and live another day. And you take away purpose in a man, you take away the essence of man, the image of God in man. And that is to glorify God and how we reflect an image after him in the way we subdue the earth. And this does not only mean in the dominion we have over living creatures, but in how we subdue uh, the ground for food, the way that we manage the earth and its resources, how we create order out of disorder by, by taking 12 notes of a musical scale and making beautiful melodies the way we create order and structure in our job, in our parental responsibilities. All of these are dominions in which we are to reflect the image of God in what we do and in the manner in which we do them, honoring him, glorifying him, obeying him. And we are what theologians call vice regents, which means deputy kings, deputy queens of all creation. And so creation serve us. But what does idolatry do? It reverses that order. And it goes in the face of the design of how God created us. In his image, creation and creatures end up not serving us, but we serve them. They subdue us. And we exchange the glory of God that is reserved for him in the way that we subdue creation and, and give rather glory to the creature, not the creator. How does this play out in our lives? Well, uh, Becky Pippert wrote this great book, and in that she quotes, uh, she writes this little quote. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power, I guess I didn't write it. I'll read it for us. Whoever contro whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives, whatever that may be. 
So you see, I can take something like exercise, which is a good thing that God created for us, for our health, for our well-being, for some of you, for your enjoyment, not me. But if I now schedule and plan out my exercises to, to, to better my physical well-being, say, you know, two, three times a week uh, to alleviate my back pain or whatnot, what am I doing? I'm subduing exercise in a way that is according to God's design to serve me, for me to utilize it. But say that it gets to the point where, where my mood is highly dependent on whether I went to the gym this, this week or not. The way that I specifically planned out my exercise regimens. Or when someone vies for my time this week and I have to forego going to the gym or, or forego going for a run, how do you feel in that moment? Or when I start to judge people on the basis of their exercise habits or lack thereof. You're not controlling exercise anymore. It's controlling you. You can take something like money. And at its basic level, money can be an item, the way that you excessively spend it on lavish things, the latest gadgets and trends and fashion and the exciting vacation. And it can control you in that way in its basic sense, but it can also control you in the way that you store and save money and you are so frugal that you don't want to spend a dollar or anything because in that you find security and comfort and you feel safe when you see your bank account grow. And in that way, money controls you and it's your Lord. It subdues you. It's the same with time. It's the same with our relationships. You can even take godly activities such as devoting a chunk of time every day, every morning, in reading scripture and praying. You know, in fact, I was reading devotions one morning and I read this by D.A. Carson. He writes that we can have a good reason, for example, to start journaling. Some of you do that. Uh, it's a great spiritual discipline. And he says it breeds honesty, it breeds self-examination, but it can easily slide into a triple trap, he says. In your mind, you can establish journaling, for example, as the clearest evidence of your personal growth, your loyalty to Christ, and that you look down at those who do not commit themselves to the same discipline. You can pat yourself on the back every day, depending on whether or not you maintain that practice. That's what we call legalism. You can start to think that only the most mature saints keep spiritual journals and how many journals they have. So you qualify and you feel better and you know quite a few who do not and you look at them and you become what we call self-righteous, which is another idol. And then you begin to think that there's something in the act itself, in the act of actually writing in your journal, on that paper, on your thoughts, and you think that itself is your means of grace, a spiritual or a special channel of divine pleasure. That's what we call superstition. That's an idol. So even in that one act of journaling, legalism, self-righteousness, and superstition, idols can control us. And it's at that time, Carson says, you need to throw away your journal. <laughs> See, how else do idols control us? They control our emotions. Martin Luther once wrote, whatever your heart clings to, that is your God. Examine your emotions. The trust and the faith of your heart alone make both God or idol. And so these counterfeit gods, as, as Tim Keller coins it, 
they become so central, so, so essential to your life that if you lose it, your life would hardly feel like worth living. These emotions are tall tale signs that these idols are controlling us. You may have, as he writes, perhaps debilitating guilt over the past, over something, and, and something that you've done and you regret, and you can't let that go, and you live with guilt time and time again. Why? Because you hold whatever that is to such a high standard that you base your emotions, how you're doing on how you lived, how you did, what you did in the past. Guilt can take control. Or in the present, something happens, something interrupts you, something vies for your attention. You get angry, you get frustrated. And in that moment, you need to unmask, why am I feeling this way? Am I holding something to such a high standard and level that I'm letting my emotions get the best of me? Or it can be about the future. Have you ever had a paralyzing anxiety whether something's going to happen or not? Is that something controlling you? Your happiness is based on whether that thing will happen or not, whether that person will respond in a certain way, whether you will get that promotion or you will get that vacation, whatever it may be, if your emotions are dependent upon the result of that action, something else is controlling you in that moment. And it's when these raw emotions control you, then at some point, we begin to lose what it is to be human. We become animal-like. We, according to Scripture, we lose more and more the image of God, to subdue animals. But on the contrary, we become like them, like creatures, like the animals and creeping things because they are the gods that we allow ourselves to be subdued under. We exchange the glory of the creator for the glory of created things, for the glory of creatures. See, back in the Garden of Eden, sin didn't come about when Adam and Eve took that first bite of the fruit. Do you know when it came about? It came about when Adam allowed the creature to enter into that Garden of Eden and start to dictate how they should live their lives. The reversal of God's order, where Adam should be the one to subdue the creature, the one to say, no more will you pass. This is God's word. When the reversal of God's created order takes place, idols Come about. And instead of subduing the serpent, they allowed the creature to subdue them. That's why, as one theologian writes, the primal problem with idolatry is that it blurs the distinction between creator God and creation. That's the first consequence. What's the second consequence? We become like the idols. When we worship them, we become more and more like them. We become what we worship, whether it be for good or for bad. And as uh, Pastor Bill shared last week, uh, these are mutually exclusive. We will either worship idols or we will worship God. And today I want to add on to that by saying we will worship idols, and when we do, we will become more like them. Or when we worship God, we will become more like him. And this is a quote from my professor. He says, we resemble what we revere either for ruin or for restoration. And one of the reasons now why the book of Romans is so theologically rich is the way that it draws back to the images found in the Old Testament. We 
saw a little bit of the Garden Eden in Genesis 1 just now. But there's more than that. If you read the language of Paul here, he hearkens back to the Psalms, to the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Let's read one of them together. This is Psalm 135. Um, let's read it together so we, 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 we see what Paul's getting at here. Ready? The idols of the nations are silver and gold. Oh, read it collectively together. That's what I meant. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. See, when Paul writes that when we worship idols, we exchange the glory we are to give the immortal God to the glory of created things, not only is he referring to the glory that we give to God and instead give to idols, he's also saying that the glory that we have in our essence becomes diminished more and more as we become like the idols themselves, with no mouths to speak, no eyes to see, no ears to hear. And in essence, we become just as dead as these created idols are. Simply put, one theologian says, whoever follows after that which is nothing becomes nothing himself. Scripture communicates this truth very explicitly, but I think many of us, at least we know in part what that means. The more you spend time with someone, the more you become like them. Don't you? There's a friend I had in college. Um, she had spent, I think, two semesters in England, and she came back all of a sudden, and she developed a British accent. Now, some of us, we were turning our heads because it had only been I think one or two semesters, and I think she really enjoyed her time, and I think she really loved the people over there. And so whether it was intentional or not, she didn't speak the same way before. It only took a few weeks before our Philadelphian roots took over again. But at the same time, she became like the people that she revered. This happens even with our spouses, our family, with the people that we spend time with. You know, when Elliot was born, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, one of the things that as new parents are very curious about is what the baby looks like, who the baby looks after. And so I was so excited when I was in that delivery room to see what he looked like and secretly hoping he looked like me. And so while I was excited to see him, the first thing I did was to examine his features. And when I laid my eyes upon him, don't get me wrong, 99% of me was ecstatic. I was happy. I was filled with joy. Good job, Mom. You've been such a trooper, and he's so beautiful. But if I'm honest, there was maybe 1% of me that said, he looks a lot like Mom, not me. <laughs> I didn't say it, but I thought it just a little. And I love him with all of my heart. But in God's kindness over these past few months, one of the things I started to realize is that though he might not look like me, there are certain things that he does, his mannerisms, the way he laughs, when you can see some of me in him. Remember, to reflect God's glory is not only by who you are, but by what you do. He definitely has the image of Luke in him. And so, 
while he doesn't look much like me in his physical makeup, there are things that he does that resemble me very much. For example, one thing that I have a habit of doing is putting my hands behind my back, and just naturally, he started to pick this up. You might actually see him do that time to time here at church. Now, I don't know where I picked that up from at that moment, but you will see him doing that, and I see him doing that, and I see me, and I see him resemble me, and I see him in that action revering me. And I'm happy because my son resembles what he reveres. And then one day, lately we've been staying at my parents' house, we caught him doing this with my mother. And I said, that's where I got it from. I got that from someone as well, resemble who we revere. See, when we worship something, when we revere someone, when we spend time with someone, consciously or not, we will become like them. When there's a group of friends that you really like, you start to listen to their music. You become interested in what they're interested in. You talk like them. In a more elegant way, C.S. Lewis captures it this way. Think about the subtle way that someone laughs, the way he looks, the intonation of his speech. They're all ways that we try to imply that we are of the same kind, of the same party as those to whom we are with. He says, all mortals tend to turn into the thing they are pretending to be. And when we revere our idols, when they control us, our dreams, our emotions, our aspirations, our fears, we become just as dead as they are. And that's what Scripture means in saying that we may have eyes, but we can't really see. We may have ears, but we can't hear. We don't have the spiritual eyes to see who God is and what God is doing. Our spiritual ears have become so deaf to be receptive to the truths of God. Our spiritual eyes are so blind to see all that God is doing in your life, in this church, and those around you. Our mouths have become so hardened that it's so hard to sing naturally the praises of God. We become like the dead idols. And so if we work backwards, if we see perhaps a deadness in our spiritual lives, a deadness to the things of God, a lack of joy, bitterness, complaining attitude, indifference, whatever it may be that characterizes our lack of love for him, then perhaps if you work backwards, is it because we become like idols, dead to these things? Because when we become like idols, we revere them for our ruin third and final consequence that God gives us up to these idols. And I realize uh, this message is pretty heavy. I told Pastor Bill that. The three points are literally three negative consequences of our idolatrous worship. We've gone over two. Our idols control us. We become like them. And I think this third consequence is the heaviest. It's that God gives us up to those very idols we revere. And that is his act of judgment upon idolaters. That is God's act of wrath. If you look with me in verse 24 and verse 25, again, let's read this together. Therefore, God gave them up.
see that same theme again of exchanging. We see that same theme again, exchanging the truth about God. And what does God do here? He says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies and themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And we see it again. If you look in verse 26, it says again, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And in verse 28, where God gave them up is to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. There is no sugarcoating here. But here our passage tells us there is an active withdrawing of God's hand upon those who worship idols. And that is his wrathful, wrathful act of judgment against them. Now when we hear about God's wrath, we can wrongfully think two things. The first wrong thinking is thinking that God's wrath is only reserved to that final act of judgment when Jesus returns. Whereas in our passage, God's wrath is being displayed as well as in the present. The second is in thinking that God's wrath, wrath is, is the same as the wrath that we're accustomed to, as human wrath. As if there are emotions of, of capricious anger or, or a sudden flaring up of passion in the way that we exhibit them. There is a word for that kind of human anger, but that's not how God's wrath is portrayed in this passage, nor in most of Scripture. In fact, God's wrath is talked about in the Bible. Actually, there's more incidences of God's wrath than examples of his love. Why is that? Because God's wrath portrayed here is one that is parallel with God's holiness and his righteousness. The way this is defined is to release judgment when the time is ripe to do so. It's calculated. It is just. It's how one theologian defines it. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Because if God wasn't angry about our idolatry, he would not be good. He would not be a just God. Not many of us possess a godly, righteous wrath like him. But God does. And not only in the future, but also in the present. It's as if God, in his forbearance and in his patience, he watches our idolatry and he watches us spiraling down out of our goodness, the giving up of our humility and humanity, and he says, fine, have it your way. See where this road of idolatry leads you. And you know what the scary thing is? It's not like God couldn't intervene and directly display his wrath against us. He could very well do that. But in his wise judgment, he decides to let us simply live our lives in idolatry. As if what we can do to ourselves is far worse. That's how evil we can be. And like the prodigal son, the father lets us off and lets us run off on our own. Knowing fully well where that road leads us. And when we become the God of our own lives, we end up far more miserable, far more angrier at others, far more lost, far more like the dead idols that we worship. 
And there's nothing scarier than being let go to venture out on our own. Even my son knows that. At the playground, he knows I'm always hovering over him like a helicopter dad, already holding on to him as he goes down the slide. And there will be times where he tries to venture off on his own, but even he knows that if I'm not close behind, he looks back and scouts, Abba, which just means dad, you're not doing your job. You have to follow me. There's nothing scarier than God to say, fine, have it your way. So where does all this leave us? In our idolatry, we are controlled by them. Not only do we serve them, but we become more like them in our deadness. Our verses tell us that God withdraws his hand from our lives so that we can see how bad our lives would be without him. To top it all off, this results in us being deaf to spiritual things, being so blind to God's blessings. And as Paul writes in verse 21, it leads us to become so futile in our thinking, our foolish hearts so darkened that we think that we are wise. We think that we know what's best with us, with our lives, our dreams, our families. We think we know what's best with this church, with our families and our careers, that we become fools, that we are being deceived. And the warning, I think, of Romans chapter 1 is for us. For us who may read this and walk away thinking, you know what, this passage isn't for me. That's the deception. That's the scary part. When we think we can control our idols. You know, an alcoholic will always say that they have a handle on how much they can drink. The gambling addict will always say that they can stop whenever they want to. But the most honest question we should ask ourselves is this. Am I being deceived by my idols? Am I far worse than I think I am? Have I become so blind and so deaf to spiritual things of how I need to live my life, of how I think my relationships should go, how I think this church should go, because I'm tithing, I'm serving, but I'm still going to hold on to my pride. I'm still going to hold on to my earthly sense of security. I'm going to still hold on to the way that my children live, my self-made hopes and aspirations. Do we constantly blame others for the lack of gospel joy in our hearts, blaming situations rather than consider perhaps it's me? Perhaps it's me that doesn't want to be a part of what God is doing in my life, in this church. It's my heart so darkened to the point where I don't even want to be convicted of my idolatry. Am I under God's present wrath of letting me live the way that I live? Tim Keller says, idols weave a delusional field, a field of denial. A denial around them so that you always minimize the impact of idols in your life. In other words, you have eyes, but you don't see. The longer you worship the idol, the more you have eyes that don't see, just like they have. You know, I struggled a lot with this passage because as I was preparing, I genuinely wanted to present it to you in a way where, where I can convince you to give up your idols 
convince you by saying, you know what, if you give up your idols, your lives will become that much better. Your relationships will be fixed. Things will be so much better in your household. I really wanted to say that. And you know what, there is truth to that. The Lord restores all things. But I was convicted in my study because, you know, I was reading this little note, a pastor, far more wiser, far more conviction and experience than me, he writes this. How does Paul preach the gospel here in Romans 1? Is he saying to the church in Rome, you know, I want to come and I want to preach the gospel to you in Rome because I have had this marvelous experience with God and I want to tell you all about it so that you can have that same kind of experience because if you want, you can have it. It's there for you. That's not what Paul does. He never is man-centered. He never allows perhaps relationships to end up becoming your God. But he's God-centered. Paul knew that what matters in the final analysis is not whether we feel good, whether we feel like we have our felt needs met or even have a meaningful experience. What matters is whether we come into a right relationship with God. And to have that, we need to begin with the truth that we are not in a right relationship with him. And that's the sobering truth of idolatry. The sobering consequences that come when we reveal the creature and not the creator. When we revere idols for our ruin. And if you, like me, feel this sense of hopelessness, a sense of despair because of these consequences, you're not alone. That's what Paul feels as well. Because if you follow Paul's thought throughout the rest of the book of Romans, he thinks the same way. That's why in Romans chapter 2, in the very next part, he says, you know what, this case of idolatry, it's true, both for the Jew and the Gentile. Whether you grew up in the church or not, whether you're in service this morning or whether you're out there, idolatry exists in these walls just as they exist out there. And he says in chapter 3, right after, he says, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And he continues and even shares in chapter 7, one of his most honest moments where he's so frustrated with himself because he knows what is good and holy, but he can't escape the power of idolatry. He writes, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. I have the desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. He goes, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And it is in this lowest point of despair, the most honest moment you can have with yourself, and to God saying, I can't do this. I can't do this Christian thing. I can't obey because I can't escape the power of these idols. And in that moment of honesty, 
very next verse, he writes this. But thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus, our Lord. For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how we not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, can I add, nor idols, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The sobering reality is that our idols have consequences. They control us. We serve them. We become like them. We become dead to spiritual things and more hardened to the things of God. And God gives us up in his wrath. But we don't receive the fullness of God's wrath because the fullness of his wrath fell upon the cross. The one who became like us in every respect, yet without sin, because we didn't revere him enough for us to be like him. But so that we can, came to earth as man. And it comes to now through his spirit, in this moment of honesty, that we can say, Jesus, I give you my heart. And when he becomes your most prized possession, then we will become like him through his perfect obedience, through his sufficient grace and his unending love. So my application, brothers and sisters, is let us be truthfully honest in the power that our idols have over our lives. Let's also be hopefully honest in our need for Christ to save us from them. Trust in him today. Let's pray. I want to just give everyone just a couple of minutes. And if you're new here today, I know it was a heavy message, but the hope and desires of us here at Renewal, it's not that you just walk away thinking, wow, what a great experience. We hope you do. But we hope away that you walk away saying, what a great Jesus we have. Brothers and sisters, Christ offers himself to you today. Trust in him to help you and all that is controlling your lives. Place your faith in him and see that he will be the Lord of your life. He will restore relationships. He will do all these things, but not because those are the things you want, 
but Christ is the one you want. Let's pray for a minute or two, and we'll end our time. Let us pray. Father, thanks be to God. Thank you for being the Lord of our lives. We thank you for relentlessly pursuing us day after day. And we do pray that we will not be deceived by our idols, will not be hardened, but through your spirit, he would awaken us, soften our hearts, that bones would turn into flesh so that we would be in tune with your gospel and with your grace and with your will for our lives. We pray all these things in Christ's name.